So what did you learn about Columbus in school? Well, I think the things that stick out are having to like rote memorize the three ships, the yeah. Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, and knowing that his journey was something that was in an effort to find a better way to reach Asia. Those are the things that stick out for me. There's definitely also involvement of Spain. But I do feel like Columbus was a, you know, it's such an elementary school topic. So I feel like I definitely made like a construction paper <laughs> ship of like one of the three right. ships. Right. We like had to pick out of a hat to see which ship you could make. You know, not yeah. everybody could make. There couldn't be 50 Ninas. There could only be like in a class of 30, like 10 Ninas. So like it was like, wow. I just feel like that was like prescribed school yeah. ritual around Columbus Day. I think I, I think I did the same thing. I mm -hmm. think I also had some sort of art project connected sure. to it. But I think generally speaking, the sort of picture that was drawn for all of us was that he was so innovative to like go this direction because they all thought the world was flat. Right. And that thanks to him, this undiscovered land was discovered. Yep. Right. What an idyllic portrait. Ooh. <laughs> yes. And damaging portrait. Oh, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. So, welcome to the first trail mix of season three, y'all. Yeah, because we're diving in. That's right. <laughs> That's right. We don't mince words. Today is in many places now considered Indigenous Peoples Day. Right. According to the federal government in the United States, right now it's still considered Columbus Day. Mm -hmm. And that is what we're digging into here on today's trail mix. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It's a rhyme that most people are familiar with as it probably was taught to all of us at a very young age. Along with this small bit of verse, some other things that we may know or may have been told about Columbus are that he was looking for the famed Northwest Passage, which would be a shorter route to Asia than it would be to go overland, as Marco Polo and others did, or at least a less treacherous one than it would be to sail around Africa. In our elementary education, we are also taught that Columbus had three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, and that he sailed not for his native Italy, but for Spain, having received money from King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. When he arrived and made it to land after a lengthy journey at sea, which left his crew displeased with him, he realized that he had not made it to Asia, nor had he found the fabled Northwest Passage, but that he had stumbled upon lands previously undiscovered and that he claimed that those lands and its people for Spain. And from henceforth, it was known as the New World, Columbus being the first to discover it. And for the most part, those are the broad strokes of the narrative, at least as I remember from being a kid. But the truth of the matter is, that the history of Columbus, his acquisition of funding, his journeys, and his arrival in the New World is really anything but idyllic. So then how do we rectify the story, which is one that was and is repeated over and over to generations of students who have formed nothing less than a favorable opinion of Columbus and what he accomplished at the outset of the Age of Exploration? Well, we have to dive in and really take a look at who, in fact, the first people to discover the Americas were. We also have to have a better understanding of Columbus as a man and what his actions were leading up to and after his fame trip. And finally, and most importantly, we have to understand what his actions were in the New World and why, instead of a hero, she should most certainly be painted as a villain. So let's start at the very beginning. 
From the 1930s, when human presence was found outside Clovis, New Mexico, the Clovis first theory dominated, stating that the first people to arrive in the Americas did so during the last ice age by crossing a land bridge from Siberia to Alaska about 11,500 years ago. The bridge, known as Beringia, subsequently sank once the ice melted between the continents. This theory became so prominent in the scientific community that many archaeologists and anthropologists stopped looking for evidence of earlier people. That is, until the theory began to be challenged in the 1970s. In the 1980s, that theory was blown wide open by the discovery of human existence in Monte Verde, Chile, that dated to about 14,500 years ago. Other pre-Clovis society discoveries pushed back that date of human arrival in the Americas even further to 15,500 years ago with the discovery of the Buttermilk Creek Complex in central Texas. There are several sites that even push the date of the arrival of the first people to the Americas further back than that. There is a dizzying amount of scientific information on the history of the movement of first peoples from Asia to the Americas, so much so that it would be difficult to cover in a single episode. Uh, So we encourage you to do your own research. But what is clear is that in no way did Columbus discover America. Plenty of other people were here first. If you want to take the Eurocentric view of discovery and what it means to discover the new world, then that is a title that doesn't belong to Columbus either. There have been several theories as to who was first, including Irish monks. But the most recognized group were the Vikings, Leif Erikson often being the name that sticks out the most. This arrival was about 500 years prior to Columbus in what is now Newfoundland. In Newfoundland, archaeological sites exist that show the civilization they established there. While they settled for a time, they had an ill-fated relationship with the indigenous people there. And although they established a trade relationship, they did not return to settle. So debunking the fact that Columbus was not the first to discover the Americas in any way should be the thing that we all remember and that we all teach in schools. But we cannot stop there. Columbus is often hailed a hero by many, but his deeds in the New World were anything but heroic. They were genocidal. Columbus was an entrepreneur and a sailor, and in trying to gain a foothold in the spice markets of the Indies, he looked to secure his fortune. However, Columbus needed capital to finance his ventures. After unsuccessful attempts with the King of Portugal, Columbus tried his luck with King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, whose union led to the de facto unification of Spain, which up until this point in history had been mostly divided. Again, so many deep dives you could take into the separate histories of the people involved in this narrative. He was sponsored by the king and queen, given titles of Admiral of the Ocean and Governor General, which gave him power and prestige, and also had the power of the crown behind him to defend any claims he made to discovered territory. After three weeks out from the Canary Islands, Columbus's crew became restless and angered. At this point in the journey, they should have reached the Indies. You have to remember at this point in history, uneducated people believed that the earth was flat and had just cause to do so because so much of it was left uncharted, especially the vast ocean, which was filled with unseen terrors of bygone eras, giant sea serpents and other creatures of the deep. His crew was understandably restless, bordering on mutinous. After spotting and trailing birds on October 10th, land was eventually spotted on October 12th. 
an island which is now part of the Bahamas. His crew made landfall that day. Believing he was on the islands that lay off the coast of Asia, as described by Marco Polo, he assumed that he had reached the Indies, naming the natives there as Indians and the island San Salvador, the first of many of the islands that he would name. The indigenous people of the island were known as the Tainos, and they called the island they inhabited Guanahani. Columbus described the people in one of his journals. This people has no religion, nor are they idolaters, but very mild and without knowing what evil is, nor how to kill others, nor how to take them, and without arms, and so timorous that from one of our men ten of them fly, although they do sport with them, and ready to believe, and knowing that there is a God in heaven, and sure that we have come from heaven, and very ready at any prayer which we tell them to repeat, and they make the sign of the cross. So your highness should determine to make them Christians, for I believe that if they begin in a short time, they will have accomplished converting to our holy faith a multitude of towns. Without a doubt, there are in these lands the greatest quantities of gold, for not without cause do these Indians whom I am bringing say that there are places in these isles where they dig out gold and wear it on their necks and in their ears and on their arms and legs, and the bracelets are very thick. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah. Believing that he was close to Japan and China, he sailed on making landfall on what is now Hispaniola, containing the Dominican Republic and Haiti. On Hispaniola, the Taino gave many gifts to Columbus and the Spaniards, but the most impressive gifts were gold and gold-made objects. After spending some time on Hispaniola, he returned to Spain with gold and several kidnapped Taino to display at court and to make interpreters. A letter from 1493 outlines his machinations for the New World, stating, quote, Their highnesses may see that I shall give them as much gold as they need, and slaves as many as they shall order to be shipped, end quote. In his second journey in 1493, using his powers as governor of newly discovered lands, Columbus ordered and enslaved several hundred Taino, who were shipped back to Spain. His barbarism aside, his tenure as governor proved to be disastrous for both the settlers he brought and the Taino. Gold was not as plentiful as he originally thought, crops failed, and the Taino, who were lorded over by the settlers, eventually went extinct around 50 years after the first contact with Columbus. Columbus made two additional journeys to the New World, none garnering as much acclaim as his first, and the last ending in his arrest and his return to Spain. The subjugation of the native people of the New World would be a trend that continued after his tenure. Columbus cannot shoulder all of the blame. The Catholic Church, the Spanish Crown, and these new European settlers also had their part to play. However, Columbus's initial abuses set in motion what would become the standard for Europeans arriving in the New World— a standard of plunder, a standard of rape, and one of genocide. Who, girl? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, when did you first learn the truth about Columbus? That's a good question. I feel like this is probably something that came from Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, mm-hmm. although this is not U.S the territories that we're talking about here, the the countries and um, 
the islands that we're speaking about are not US based. But I do feel like it was probably in some way mentioned there. And if it wasn't, then it was like a talking point in my history class, like Mm. my AP history class my senior year, because I feel like my history teacher did a good job at really covering things from all angles. But I think after elementary school, I feel like you don't really think too much about Columbus other than you know, maybe you have that day off in October, yeah, which we never did. But I, I do feel like that was kind of like, oh, it's Columbus Day. And, you know, you kind of just remember in 1492, he sailed the ocean blue. But I don't think I really thought too much about him after that point until history and senior year. What about you? Yeah, I don't remember a time in high school and elementary school where I necessarily like was sat down and taught the reality of who he was and what he did. I feel like I had to learn it from, you know, like the, my very intelligent, like theater friends in college Mm -hmm. in between classes when people are like, you know, smoking cigarettes by the dumpster when they're like, let's talk about Christopher Columbus and how horrible he really was and how we in America keep teaching. And like, that was the first time I really heard about Mm. it. I was like, Oh really? It was, you know, Reminds me a lot of like Ilana on Broad City, you know, how she Mm -hmm. has like all those conspiracy theories, though this is not a conspiracy by any means. This is reality. This is the truth. But it was from my friends like that who had looked into it more. And I was like, oh, I didn't know this at all. And then a couple of years ago, worked on a project with some students on the story of Juan Ponce de Leon. And that is how I found out all about how truly awful Christopher Columbus was, as was his son Diego Columbus. Not much better. No. At all. If, in fact, potentially worse. Yeah. So how, from this insanity, was it decided that Columbus should be honored with a federal holiday? In short, bigotry, which is one of the most common threads that runs through the history of America. Between the 1880s and the 1920s, Italians were some of the biggest immigrators to the United States. As with most new groups of immigrants, like the Irish before them, Italian immigrants faced intense backlash and bigotry. This bigotry came to a railhead in New Orleans in 1891, where one of the largest lynchings in the nation's history took place of 11 Italian immigrants. After the assassination of police chief Hennessy, several Italian citizens were suspected based off of Hennessy's dying words and a prominent feud that was taking place between two Italian families, which Hennessy was keeping a close watch on. Hundreds of Italians were rounded up, even those who in no way had any sort of connection to Hennessy or the feud. Nine of those hundred were brought to trial, and when six not guilty and three mistrials were the results, the city of New Orleans was whipped into a frenzy. These nine men and two others who were in no way connected to the trial were murdered by the citizens of New Orleans in a vigilante-style justice. Their bodies were riddled with bullets and where they were eventually displayed or hung, perhaps as a warning to others. Columbus Day was born a year later in 1892 as a way to both celebrate Italian heritage and the contributions of Italian Americans as much as it was used to commemorate the lives lost in the mass lynching a year earlier. This day became a beacon for Italian-Americans who faced continued discrimination through the early part of the 20th century. Columbus Day became a day to celebrate and uplift Italian heritage. Through lobbying efforts, FDR declared it a federal holiday in 1934, even though Columbus had never set foot in the U.S. Let's transition for a second, and let's talk about Indigenous Peoples Day. When is the first time that you heard 
Indigenous Peoples Day as an alternative to Columbus Day? I would say probably sometime in my early to mid-20s, like right after college. Like I feel like that was like maybe the first time that that had kind of gained a foothold and sort of national attention. But I can't like remember exactly when, but I would say definitely in college or thereafter um, was probably when that became something that was talked about a little bit more and a little bit more prominent as an idea. What about you? I mean, I guess, yeah, within the last 10 years. So Mm -hmm. I guess the same amount of time. Right. You know, I guess around the the same dumpster with the people smoking cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's when I started to hear about that. Mm -hmm. Indigenous Peoples Day began as a way to challenge the narrative that Columbus discovered America. The first talks of creating an alternative to Columbus Day started back in the 1970s. But the Berkeley City Council in Berkeley, California, was the first city in the United States to officially recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. Also, fun fact, Berkeley was also the first to outlaw styrofoam. So it seems that Berkeley, California is a clear trendsetter. The idea came to the Berkeley City Council in 1990 after the first Continental Conference on 500 Years of Indian Resistance in Quito, Ecuador. This led to another conference between Northern California Native American groups who then brought the idea for an alternative day to the Berkeley City Council. They officially recognized Indigenous Peoples Day in 1992, becoming the first city in the United States to do so. And South Dakota soon followed by becoming the first state. Since then, Indigenous Peoples Day has been officially recognized by many states in the U.S. and in Washington, D.C., particularly in most recent years. And in 1994, the U.N. established August 9th as International Day of the World's Indigenous People, though it is not yet an official federal holiday. Bailey Champagne, a tribal citizen of the United Homa Nation of Louisiana, recently petitioned the governor of Louisiana for the change. She said in an interview, It's about celebrating people instead of thinking about somebody who actually caused the genocide of an entire population. By bringing Indigenous Peoples Day, we're bringing awareness that we're not going to allow someone like that to be glorified into a hero because of the hurt that he caused to indigenous people of America, end quote. She hopes it will be, quote, a celebration and to bring acknowledgement to the native population, end quote. While celebrating and including indigenous people, particularly in a federal holiday, would by no means make up for the years of erasure and systemic racism that they have endured under American colonialism, it would be a step in the right direction of inclusion and awareness. As mentioned in the final Tromex of season two, one of the most damaging acts of systemic racism towards indigenous people, aside from genocide and forced removal, was their exclusion in the creation of laws and policy regarding outdoor spaces and wilderness. Listen to that episode to understand why I said wilderness like it had quotations around it. However, despite all of this, there is still pushback to change from Columbus Day. Rutgers University professor Jameson Sweet said in an interview, quote, I am Lakota and Dakota, and as an indigenous person, I don't believe there is any room to commemorate Columbus. Columbus was directly responsible for genocide, rape, enslavement, and the theft of indigenous land. And he set off centuries of colonialism that still exists today. The U.S. is still a colonial nation. Indigenous Americans are still a colonized people. And the U.S. continues to limit their rights as sovereign indigenous nations. Many indigenous people, myself included, view Columbus 
with the same disdain as Hitler, Stalin, or others who committed genocide. And rightfully so. Some Italian-Americans in the U.S. have adopted Columbus Day as a kind of Italian-American holiday because there are no other holidays that celebrate their contributions to the nation. Unfortunately, some people then see a challenge to Columbus Day as an attack on Italian-Americans. I believe that Columbus Day should be changed to Indigenous Peoples Day, but I think we should also create an Italian-American Heritage Day, end quote. And this is essentially the argument that Columbus Day is considered a day to celebrate Italian-American heritage. And to speak to this, we are going to refer to the response of the former mayor of Berkeley, California, Lonnie Hancock, who said, quote, we just had to keep reiterating that that was not the purpose. The purpose was to really affirm the incredible legacy of the indigenous people who were in the North American continent long before Columbus. But I'd also suggest that most of the Italian Americans really came to this country looking for safety and economic opportunity. And I'm sure we could find some of the Italian Americans who stood up for that and helped to make that happen. Maybe we should look into that, end quote. And to add to that, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, author of Indigenous People's History of the United States, offers, quote, Why not have Leonardo da Vinci, not a genocidal colonizer? End quote. So do you really want him as your leader? I'm not Italian-American. You are technically. I'm, yeah, mostly Italian. Mostly Italian. A little bit of Irish, but I look more Irish. Has there ever been a culture in your family to celebrate Columbus Day as like a day of Italian-American heritage? No. Okay. (laughs) Not that your story is representative of everyone's. Right, of everyone's story. Certainly not. No. But, um... The world yeah, would be a I do. F- <laughs> <laughs> if you could make the rules, mm-hmm. um, I do feel like you know maybe there maybe let's let's look into amazing Italian Americans sure. and see you know if you want to name your Heritage Day after a person, maybe there is another Italian American who did. Sure, because I mean. Columbus was not Italian-American. He was Italian. Right. He was not Italian-American. Right. But I think the source of pride is like, well, he did it first, but he actually didn't. He didn't do anything first. He didn't do anything first. He didn't even step foot on what is now America. And he murdered a bunch of people and like set the wheels in motion for everybody else to be murdered. So it's like, maybe I shouldn't say this. It would be like if the German Americans were like, you know, Let's have a Hitler day. Well, it's sort of like if the gay community were like, well, let's call it Kevin Spacey day. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Never. Never. Right. But no. Yeah. No, it's just, I. it's not a good yeah, idea. Yeah, it's definitely like you have, there are so many other people out there that you could pick to be your representative or you could just totally do, you know, this is Italian American Heritage Day, and you could just celebrate the achievements of all of the Italian Americans that are right. prominent. Like, and I, I understand you know. the sort of historical connection between Columbus being connected to the story out of New Orleans, and I understand that that is that was a real moment of uh, injustice mm-hmm. toward Italian Americans. Mm-hmm. And that story should absolutely be remembered. We should not erase that story. No. But by removing Columbus Day and replacing it with Indigenous Peoples Day, it doesn't erase that story. No. No. But I do think that it is important that we also acknowledge that story, find a way to acknowledge that story that is not connected to Christopher Columbus. Right. 
So if you're curious about what is the key to unlocking your own evolution when it comes to rethinking history, the answer lies in what we teach and how we teach. In September of 2019, the Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. hosted Indigenous Peoples Curriculum Days. From the article published, Indigenous Peoples Day, Rethinking How We Celebrate the American History, by Dennis W. Zotig and Renee Goki, published in Smithsonian Magazine, Dr. Sarah Shear, Assistant Professor of Social Studies Education at Penn State University, Altoona, gave the keynote presentation at these curriculum days and presented research on U.S. history education standards from all 50 states. In 2015, Scheer and her colleagues published their research showing that 87% of the references to Native Americans in U.S. curricula are in the context of American history before 1900. Quote, The narrative presented in U.S. history standards, when analyzed with a critical eye, directed students to see indigenous peoples as a long-since-forgotten episode in the country's development, end quote. In 2015, Scheer and her colleagues published their research showing that 87% of the references to Native Americans in U.S. curriculum are from before 1900. Quote, The narrative presented in U.S. history standards, when analyzed with a critical eye, directed students to see indigenous peoples as a long-since-forgotten episode in the country's development, end quote. They continued, quote, When one looks at the larger picture painted by the quantitative data, it is easy to argue that the narrative of U.S. history is painfully one-sided in its telling of the American narrative, especially with regard to indigenous peoples' experiences. The qualitative findings further illuminate a Euro-American narrative that reinstitutes the marginalization of indigenous cultures and knowledge. Indigenous peoples are left in the shadows of Euro-America's destiny, while the cooperation and conflict model provides justification for the eventual termination of indigenous peoples from the American landscape and historical narrative. Finally, a tone of detachment especially with long lists of legal and political terms, dismisses the humanity of indigenous cultures and experiences in the United States, end quote. Our sources for today's trail mix include Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day by Layla Fidel, published on NPR. Everything You Need to Know About Indigenous Peoples Day by Lisa Marie Segara, published on time.com. How Indigenous Peoples Day Came to Be by Nolan Feeney, published on time.com. Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day Depends on Where You Are by Heather Murphy and Amy Ortiz, published in the New York Times. Indigenous Peoples Day Rethinking How We Celebrate American History by Dennis W. Zotig and Renee Goki, published in Smithsonian Magazine. Earliest Evidence for Humans in the Americas by Paul Rencon, published on bbc.com. Coming to America, Who Was First by Eric Weiner, published on NPR. Rutgers Native American Experts Weigh In on Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day Debate, published on Newswise.com. And The Grizzly Story of America's Largest Lynching by Aaron Blakemore, published on the History Channel. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often. And that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram 
at gaze at the national parks to contact us email us at gaze at the national parks at gmail.com and to find out more about the parks we visit on this show visit our website gaze at the national parks.com that's gaze g-a-c-e all original artwork featured on instagram and on our website is by michael ryan all original music was written by dave seaman and performed by dave seaman mariella klinger and sean skleos our music producer is skylar fortgang This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, that we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, now known as Ocean County, New Jersey. 